Lord willing, this will be the last time that we have in this chapter. Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me. Now, something here. Same father, two totally different sons. Now, what's the explanation? It's, it's a mystery, isn't it? The youngest of them said, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. He went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up. Now, he, he was down. I will get up. Now, I don't know if he was on his knees in the mud, but he was down. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. No longer give me, but make me. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion for him, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer to be wor- no longer worthy to be called your son. Father just stops him before he can even get the words out. The father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. He became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. He answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you've never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead has begun to live and was lost and has been found. 
we've been considering for several weeks now this matchless and glorious parable of the lost son. And thus far we've looked at verses 11 through 24, which show the son's rebellion and the son's repentance and the son's reception by the father. And uh, we looked last week at the son's reception by the father, verses 20 through 24. And what gracious and wonderful words these are. They're gracious and wonderful because they're not just part of a little story that Jesus is telling, but they're a description by the Lord Jesus Christ himself of what God is like. That's what makes this so wonderful. The infinite, holy, sovereign of the universe that Dick was talking about, who would dare to risk their life to approach unto him? That's what this prodigal is doing. He's approaching back to the Father in his rags, in his mud, uh, in his sin. He's coming back, begging mercy of the Father. The infinite, holy sovereign of the universe who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. The question comes up, what would he do to a repentant sinner? What would his attitude be toward a repentant sinner? What would his attitude be toward you if you came to him in rags and with the swine mud all over you? and came and begged his mercy. Well, what would he do to you? Jesus gives the answer. He tells us in verses 20 and 22 and 23. This is what this wonderful, holy God is like. Here's what he does to repentant sinners. He runs to them and feels compassion for them and embraces them and kisses them. And uh, he says, bring out the best robe, not not just a coat, a robe, and not just a robe, the very best robe in the household. That's the way he treats each individual sinner that comes to him. No matter how evil their past life, no matter how shameful, no matter how terrible their actions have been, how defiling the way God treats that individual person, you, if you come to him, He gives the very best robe in the house to you. And he puts a ring on your finger. Authority, honor, a sense of respect and dignity. This this younger son never had, he had no reason to think that there would ever be any respect for him again. That he'd ever be able to hold up his head again. And here he is given a ring right away by the Father. Respect and a sense of worth. When he felt and was so worthless in himself, he is accepted by the Father and given this symbol of his worth and uh, a sense of dignity and respect. If Satan brings up to you your past life, you need to show him your reign and your robe and the sandals on your feet, that you're a a son. You're not a slave in the household. You're a son. And uh, your father has given you 
a symbol of honor and authority. Well, verse 23 also, such joy, that's the way the great sovereign of the universe will receive us if we come to him. He'll receive us with joy and with compassion and amazing forgiveness. Someone has called this the most winsome and attractive picture of a forgiving God ever drawn on earth. And I think that's right. This parable of the Lord Jesus here, the most winsome and attractive picture of a forgiving God that anybody has ever given. And nobody else could give it because nobody else could speak with this the authority of Christ concerning the way God is. What a gospel this is. That we have, the God who created the universe is a loving God who is eager to forgive to the uttermost and to totally restore complete, perfect fellowship with Himself between Himself and sinners. What a gospel it is. Uh, We can be assured that whoever that person is, however low they have gone, that if they will turn back toward the Father, in a little while they'll be clothed with the best robe there is and admitted with great rejoicing and joy into the Father's house. What an amazing thing. Think how different this is than the God of Islam, for example. Totally different thing. Uh, Amazing words of Jesus here. Now, verse 24 then ends with great joy and rejoicing. The one who was dead has come to life The one who was lost has been found. But then, all of a sudden, in verses 25 and following, what a jarring note of discord comes in in the midst of all the harmony and rejoicing. Uh, How out of place this is. How ugly this is. How sour it is. How devilish it is. In contrast to all the joy and the rejoicing. Here Here is a kid that... They could have thought, they probably did think he might be dead. And as far as his spiritual state, he was dead. And uh, he was lost. And here he had come home and he had been found. And there was such joy. And then this, like I said, jarring note of discord. uh, Ugly, bitter thing, this response of the elder son. So today I'd like to speak to you on the second lost son, or you might maybe be better to say the other lost son, the other lost son. Um, You see, this parable begins with the younger son leaving home and the elder son staying. It ends with the younger son at home in a way that he had never been before. You realize, now he was really at home. I mean, before he was living there, before he took out, but he wasn't at home. So it ends with the younger son at home, in a way that he'd never been before, and the elder son refusing to go into the home. You see that? This is the second lost son, or the other lost son. We talked one time in this series about lostness. I want to point it out. 
how that all through this chapter, lostness is given not so much in terms of the thing lost, but in terms of the one who has lost it, the anguish in the heart of the one who has lost the item. And you see that in every one of these parables. In the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, there's not a lot said about that sheep out there lost, straying around, bleeding and everything. That was true. But the emphasis is on the shepherd who's anguishing over this one sheep and going out and doing all these things to bring back this sheep and what joy is in his heart when he finds that sheep. And the same way with the the parable of the woman with the lost coin, the emphasis is not on the lost coin, it's on the woman. And what diligent seeking she does until she finds that coin and what rejoicing there is. And... The same thing in, in terms of the father. Uh, uh, the father says, my son was lost. It, it puts the emphasis on the father's anguish at this son uh, who had been lost. So what anguish the father felt for this younger son. Uh, but now... The younger son who was lost to him. You see, that's the point. It was He was lost to him. The younger son who was lost to him has now been found in a way that he had never been before. So he has his younger son. And such joy in his heart for this younger son that is now truly his and truly his son. Think then how the father feels in his heart. What anguish... Uh, what grief, how sick at heart he must have been to have to leave those festivities and go out into the dark and try to reason with this sullen, proud rebel of an older brother and try to get him to come inside. You see, he's got two lost sons. That one there has stayed at home, but he's just as lost to the father as the other one was. Now, isn't that quite a thing? The first one has now become a son indeed, and the second one still isn't. He still isn't a son indeed. Well, who is this elder brother? Uh, I think the answer is very clear that he represents the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember we looked at this, the setting of this whole chapter in verses 1 and 2. All the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now that's exactly what the last part of this parable is about. So he's talking here about scribes and Pharisees. The people have pressed the parable itself and missed the whole point. You know, they say, well, look, this was a son. He was a son there, and he was, and he stayed at home, and he was always there, and he must. And so they say, you know, it has to do with righteous people who have been saved all along and since childhood and that kind of thing. That misses the whole thing completely. Not talking about that. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. What are the characteristics of this older brother? Well, there are several of them that come out down through here. First of all, very first thing, anger. Anger. <clears throat> Verse 28, he became angry. 
this is unbelievable. Here his own brother had returned safe and sound. And instead of rejoicing, he's angry. Number two, pouting. Verse 28. He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out. He's going to pout until someone comes out to him. That's the condition here. That's the situation. I'm just not going to go in there. I'll wait for somebody to come out to me. And notice this. It says, He was not willing to go in, and his father came out. His father came out. Number three, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Verse 29. He answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years, I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. Now, he thinks he's really been through a lot all those years, you know, that he's been uh, serving the Father. And he thinks he's really done something. I've never neglected, a, or in the margin it says, I've never disobeyed a command of yours. Now, we know that isn't true. You see, he's looking totally on the outside, on the exterior of obedience. But we know that he had disobeyed the Father because he's doing it right now in this parable right here at this point. He's grieving the heart of his Father and disobeying him terribly. But he doesn't realize even that there's more to sonship than outward obedience. He doesn't realize that. So... He's self-righteous. He has an outward obedience. He's done these various things, but he's disobedient and grievous to the Father uh, on the inside. And that brings us to the next characteristic, and that is slavish obedience. <clears throat> what obedience he had was not out of love. That's very obvious. Uh, he's, he's he's bemoaning. He said, "Look, all these years. Now that doesn't that doesn't sound like somebody that's delighting. I mean, think thinks all these years I've had to serve God. You know, that's not serving God. That's not serving God. And so it's a slavish obedience. William Hendrickson translates the word serve here as slaving. All these years <clears throat> I've been slaving." For so many years, I've been slaving for you. Uh, it's the word doulos, which is the word for slave, and, to, and this is the verb for me here, to work like a slave. So it, it, he just says it right in the way he says it. All these years, I've been slaving away for you. See, and that, that is what self-righteous, quote, obedience is like. I mean, it's a drudgery. It's something you hate. But uh, you're going to do it because you have to. And so, and uh, once you've gone through the misery of serving your father, uh, then you bring it up to him, throw it up to him for all the good stuff you've done. And you see how disgusting and evil that type of obedience is. The father doesn't want the obedience of a slave. He wants the obedience of a son. And those of you who are fathers, uh, you know what this is like. It's one thing to have your son work for you because he has to. And that's better than nothing. But uh, what a delight if you can sense that your son wants to help you. 
it's a totally different thing. What a joy it is to a father to have a son uh, who delights to serve him. And that's, see, that's what true sonship is. Now think of this younger son now that he's come home. Suppose the father asked him to do something. What would the attitude be? See, totally different. Totally different attitude. He's the true son. This other older one, he's just as rebellious in his heart and just as far away in a far country as the younger one was in a spiritual sense. So, self-righteousness and slavish obedience. What else? Self-pity. Verse 29. I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you never gave me, you've never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. You know, poor me, what a hard lot I've had. I never get anything like that. That was a result of seeing somebody else being blessed. I never get anything like that. Self-pity. What else? Well, verse 29 again, ungratefulness. you never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. Now notice that this ungratefulness is directed towards the Father. He's bringing this charge against the Father. You never, you've done me wrong. And if we have high thoughts of ourselves... Uh, you can be sure that we're, it won't be long before we have hard thoughts about God. Because we, we feel like we deserve more than the raw deal that we're getting. And that's what you have here. Ungratefulness. Now the fact is, this was not true. This older brother had been given his fair share. Uh, we see that in verse 12. It says, He divided His wealth between them. This portion for the younger son was given to him, one-third. And by the way, the older brother got twice as much as the younger brother. And he's been given his two-thirds. Now, it's going to come to him when the father dies, but that's his. That's why the father says, All that is mine is yours. Everything he had left. He gave away one-third to this younger son, and every single thing he had left was going to belong to this older son. And uh, you can be sure that if he had asked his father for a kid, that he could have a time of rejoicing with his friends, if he had any friends, you can be sure the father would have allowed him to do that. I mean, any kind of a father who would give a third of the estate to his to his son that he knows is rebellious and going to waste it, uh, would certainly have given a kid to this fellow if he wanted it. So it's totally unfounded. But that's the charge, ungratefulness. And then, what else? Bitterness, verse 30. You hear this coming through. When this son of yours came, he, he doesn't say when my brother came. He says this son of yours when he came. He's bitter. You feel the bitterness, the sarcasm, the contempt. And notice this now. It's not just contempt and sarcasm towards the younger brother. It's toward the father. This son of yours, look what you've done. He's implying that the father has done wrong by receiving his lost son back with joy. And you see, really, verse 29 and 30, both of them are directed 
totally against the Father. He says, I, I never got to have a kid, and then look what you've done here now with this one. They're directed against the Father. So, what this means is, is that you may be bitter and jealous about the attention someone else is getting. The fact is, that's directed against God. If that's the attitude of your heart, you're directing that ultimately against God. What else? Well, slander, verse 30. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, how did he know about that? How did he know that he had devoured his wealth with harlots? This boy was living in a far country. Nobody knew he was even alive. That's totally a slanderous statement that he's making himself. He doesn't know what, what's... And back here earlier where it says he squandered his estate with loose living, actually, uh, the uh, original there has the idea of just spending, just totally blowing his money but it's not the idea of loose living in the sense of necessarily saying what kind of things he was doing. But anyway, this is just a, it's a slander. It's something that he doesn't know. And uh, furthermore, he says he has devoured your wealth. And you notice in the margin, literally, he's devoured your living. So he's saying to the Father, you don't, you're not even left with anything to live on. He's devoured your living. That wasn't true. The father still had two-thirds of the estate, and he was able to make a very good living without this portion. And the, the younger son had taken the portion that belonged to him legally. Now, he got it sooner than he should have gotten it. That was, that was grace there. But it did belong to him. And uh, even though he had wasted that rich estate, nevertheless, he hadn't taken away the father's living. So there was slander towards the one that uh, uh, he was jealous of, and that's the next characteristic, jealousy. This is very clear all through this account. He was angry and upset. Now, isn't this something? He was angry and upset, not because the father had wronged him. He was angry and upset because the father had shown, showed kindness to somebody else. Now, that's just nothing but sheer jealousy. And it's very parallel, isn't it, to the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 20 uh, about the laborers in the vineyard. The laborers went out, you remember, and they hired on for such and such amount for a day's work. And at the end, they're angry, not because they didn't get what they hired on for, not because they didn't get a fair wage, they're angry and grumbling because somebody else was shown grace and kindness. And uh, Jesus says, Is your eye evil because I'm good? Uh, a very ugly thing to, uh, to be upset and angered because God has been kind to someone else. Not doing us the least bit of wrong, but being kind to someone else. Amazing thing. You know, uh, Matthew Henry, I think it was, pointed out how opposite this is from what the apostles did in relation to the apostle Paul. Think of that. They had been serving Christ at the time when he was persecuting Christ. And all of a sudden, this guy, I mean, the apostle Saul, all of a sudden, Saul 
is the most eminent apostle. And he's given more gifts than any of them have. And how did, how did they respond? You know, get mad at God because he saved this guy and gave him all these gifts that they don't have? No, it says they were glorifying God because of me. They just praised God. They were so thankful to see someone like Saul actually being made into the most eminent apostle. Well, um, what's the final characteristic? Shocking hardness and coldness and lack of love. And uh, I think that's uh, maybe maybe the biggest, I don't know. But this was his brother. This was his brother who has come home broken and repentant and safe and sound, and he's angry. He could care less about the good of another person. He could care less about uh, this brother. He's centered on himself. That's all he cares about is himself. Well, those are the characteristics of the older brother, but I I hasten in uh, closing here to get to the real heart of things here, and that is the characteristics of the father. The characteristics of the older brother we've seen, but the characteristics of the father, this is the real heart of this parable, and this is truly glorious. What is the father's attitude toward this peevish, sullen, arrogant, self-righteous older brother? Now this is, I use this word a lot, but this is amazing. This is more surprising, if anything, than the Father's attitude toward the repentant sinner. What is God's attitude? Beloved, think of this. Jesus is talking about God's attitude and dealings with Pharisees. What's God's attitude toward Pharisees? Well, He is... liberal and overflowing in his love toward them too. That's the thing that is so amazing about this. What does God do? What does God do in his dealing with the Pharisees? Well, first of all, he comes out to him. In other words, the characteristic of the Father, complete humility, such grace on the part of the Father. When he heard that this older son was outside sulking. All he would have to say is, leave him out there. It's my house and I'll do what I want to in my house. And just blast him for the wickedness of his attitude. You realize the father goes outside to this guy. Now, that Jesus is telling us, and this, you know, maybe we don't realize this enough. He was so gracious to those Pharisees and scribes who were so despicable. And he actually saved. It, look at this. He saved the most eminent Pharisee of any of them. The Apostle Paul. He was gracious to self-righteous people like this that are so evil in the sight of God. He was so gracious and shows such forbearance and such humility. So he came out to him, humility, and then tender entreaty. Verse 28, he began entreating him. And 
Notice how gentle this is, verse 31. He said to him, my child, and he reasons with it. What a contrast between the father and the son. The son had never entered into the spirit of the father or of the father's household. They They were as different as night and day. You can tell that right here. Everything we learn about this father, isn't it amazing? He's got two sons. Neither one of them have a clue of the real heart of that home. They're just totally oblivious to it. They're a stranger to it. This this older brother had lived here all these years, and yet he was a total stranger to the, to the real heartbeat of that household. I was thinking last night, if I were a child again, what a blessing it would be to have parents like Mike and Julie or Dick and Renee or Jim and Terry. What a blessing it would be to have parents who love God, who want the best for you. What a blessing. I mean, neither one of my parents were Christian. And what a, a thing to, to just to be in a home where there's, the, the parents want your very best. They want the very best thing for you, and they want to serve God, and they're willing to lay down their lives for you. And yet some of you kids, many of you, you've never caught on to the to the heartbeat of your household, to what your parents... You don't even know who your parents are. You don't even know who they are. And the only way you ever will is if you repent of your sins, come to God, and are given a new heart. Well, here's this father gently reasoning with the son. And that's what we see God doing in the Scriptures. You remember back there when uh, with Cain and Abel? Uh, clear back at the very start, here's these first two brothers. And uh, what's the situation? Cain is the self-righteous older brother. And he's mad because God has shown favor to his brother. And what's the Lord do? He could just cut him off right there. He could kill him right there, but he doesn't. He comes and reasons with him and talks to him. He says, the Lord said to Cain, why are are you angry? Why is your countenance fall? If you do well, will will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. What what a gracious thing for God to come to him and reason with him and implore him. And he goes on and rebels against God and resists him and kills his brother. God says, come now, let us reason together. Here he's talking to sinners. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What grace. Now, what what you see, what we see here, is the Lord Jesus unfolding to us more of the character of God. How He deals, not only how He deals with defiled prodigals, but how He deals with defiled, self-righteous people. Very gracious, this God. And you see, really, it's the Father who is the center of this parable. The Father's love, the Father's compassion, the Father's character. And that's true of the whole chapter. We've seen that already. 
the parable of the lost sheep. What's the center of that? The center of it is the shepherd and his love and his perseverance and his diligence and his joy when he finds the sheep. What's the center of the parable of the, of the lost coin? The center of it is this woman who gets down on her hands and knees and sweeps the house and brings a lamp until she finds us and rejoices over it. And the center of this last parable is not a prodigal son who goes to a far country, and it's not self-righteous people who who think that they're good, but the center of the parable is this father and what he's like. What an amazing father this is. William Hendrickson again, uh, and I didn't didn't really see this when I first started uh, speaking on this chapter, but... uh, He said that he believes the central theme of the chapter could be summed up like this. The Father's yearning love for the lost. The Father's yearning love for the lost. And that's really, that's that's good. I mean, I think he's got it. The central theme. You know, what, if somebody said to you, what's the central theme of Luke 15? Say, well, it's about lost things. No, it's not. It's about the Father's yearning love for the lost thing. Father's yearning love for the lost. What a glorious theme, what a glorious gospel, what a glorious God. But we're never told whether this older brother ever repented and went in or not. And I think Jesus left it open-ended on purpose so that we might put ourselves in, in this situation and apply it to ourselves. One man put it like this, all the excesses of the prodigal will not shut him out of heaven, for he came repenting to his father. But all the virtues of the elder brother will not let him into heaven, for he cherished pride in his heart and taunted his father for overlooking his word. Isn't that something? All the so-called virtues of the elder brother will not let him into heaven. For he cherished pride in his heart and taunted his father for overlooking his word. Well, may God help us not to be in that category uh, of the older brother. This, You know, I, I, it's very clear to me that I had never appreciated properly Luke chapter 15, it's, it's a wonderful thing, parable, or chapter, but uh, this, this, is, uh, this is glorious beyond words, and uh, many, many prodigals, and I hope that many, many self-righteous people have been saved through, convicted and saved and encouraged and helped through this parable, through this chapter.